Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll be in, as I said, Revelation 5, and then over to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Let's pray. Father, these moments each week as we, as a body, gather around your word are tremendous because the reality is we are about to hear from you. Though I may be speaking, the truth is that I'm just a mouthpiece. And if you would come in the fullness of your Holy Spirit, we would hear from you. And so I pray, Lord, that that would happen. I pray that you would remove any of my personality, um, remove any of my distractionary tendencies or quirks, and that this would be a moment and this would be a 40 minutes where you would speak because every week we need to hear from you. Every day we need to hear from you in your word. And so I pray, Lord, that you would come now. Be with us as we look into your word. Be with us as we, if you would grant... Be with us as we look at the glory of God and all of its tremendous, extensive expansion. And would you cause our hearts to be in awe of that? If that would happen, if that would happen, we don't need any application. If you would capture our hearts with your glory, then how we're supposed to live the way we're supposed to live, the way we're supposed to love would happen. So would you grant that to us? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> I've struggled this week, all week, uh, writing this sermon. And the reason why I've struggled is not because I don't have something to say. That's never really ever been a problem. I've always had plenty to say. Um, but I've struggled this week because I've tried to think of how I want it to be said, how I want it to most effectively be communicated because um, I want it to be biblical, I want it to be encouraging, and um, I want it to be a sermon. And for a sermon to be a sermon, it has to have certain things. And so I've really kind of this week gone back and rethought through for the, I don't know how many at the time, what in the world is really a sermon? I've read a book this whole week called The Supremacy of God in Preaching by John Piper, um, which has one, been one tremendous help just to rethink through what in the world is the content of a sermon supposed to have so that this would be, um, this would be a present in what I'm saying. Because here's the deal, and as I've learned, relearned, I should say this week, um, my goal this week and every week that I preach is that this would happen. That the glory of God would be put on display. That's the, that's the goal of every sermon. That you and I would manifestly, visibly see with the eyes of our heart the glory of God. And if that is put on display for us, then we know how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to love, what we're supposed to do when we walk out of the door. So if I don't put that on display each week, then this is just not a sermon. It's a pep rally or whatever. 
So that's my, that's my goal this week and every week. Now I have a secondary goal this week specific that I'm trying to, um, trying to accomplish. And it is this. For every single one of us in this room, that if this is our church, this is where we call our church, that we would all step up in serving this church in particular with everything we have. That we would step up and serve. Now, here's the deal. Um, the first goal uh, feels like a good goal. I mean, no one's going to argue with me. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Um, you should do that. Every week display the glory of God. But the second goal feels like an application. And I think it feels like an application because I think it is an application. And so um, I want specifically today that we would see the glory of God on display. And as, um, as we see that, one of the things that would happen is that every single one of us, if this is our church home, that we would step up and serving this body. Now, there's really kind of two ways that can go when I talk about serving. I talk about serving the city and man, I... We wore that out this fall and all the mission stuff and all the Matthew stuff that we did on mission. And so I'm not neglecting the service of the city, and I believe in that. And so you can go listen to like nine weeks of sermons on that. But today I'm going to kind of focus on not just not the focus is not going to be on serving of the, the, the city, but the serving of the church, because both are biblical and both must happen. If you're a member of a church, you must serve the city and you must serve the church. Now, um, because the second goal feels like an application... Um, this is what I want to happen. I want to hold out the glory of God so much so that we would serve the body because we believe that that's what God is calling us to do. Meaning, I want you to know how serving the body of Christ is particularly glorifying to God. Because every single one of us would say, if we're believers, that we should glorify God with our life. And I want you to see how particularly today... Serving this body with everything you can, being a part of it, is particularly glorifying to God. And so if I can connect goal one to goal two, then I think that I've done my job. So today, I want us all to hope and believe in the glory of God and know that serving in the body is for the glory of God. Now, here's something you all should know. The goal of preaching is to hold out the glory of God so that you and I... Every person in this room would deeply grasp through faith in Christ the glory of God. So there's, there's a means by which I want you to disp- see and grasp onto the glory of God, and it's through faith. Every sermon that I preach, I'm driving towards, not just for unbelievers, but for believers as well, I'm driving towards faith. Faith is essential that it be called for in every single sermon. That's why every sermon must have the gospel in it, because that's the only thing that you should put your faith in, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so every sermon should have the gospel, because the gospel is, for the sinner, um, a place where they meet Jesus for the first time, but also the gospel is, for every believer, um, what is going to cause you to preserve, or keep on persevering, I should say, in your faith. Let me quote John Piper um, from a book called The Supremacy of God in Preaching, which I said I read this week. And here's the deal. It's, it's written for pastors. It's written for preachers. And basically, he's trying to help preachers see um, what a sermon should look like and what, what we're going after, which is the supremacy of God in preaching, obviously. But here's the thing. Um, if you never preach a sermon, you should read this book. If you are going to listen to sermons for the rest of your life, which I'm hoping you're going to, you should read this book so that you can know... 
I know what I should be listening for when I hear sermons because I believe that his book is biblical. Um, and I know the Bible tells you it, but I believe you should read this because um, he is being biblical as he, as he writes this book. And everyone should know what it is that they should be listening for in sermons. It shouldn't be just helpful hints towards dating or how to be a good spouse. Those things are, are needed, but they have to be rooted in something, not just kind of thrown out there as this is something you should do in life or else it's just advice. It's not a sermon. It's just a, a public speech with advice in it. So here, let me, read this, let me read this quote. John Piper says in his book, Preaching is a means of grace to assist the saints to persevere. So each week, there's a weight upon my shoulders that I have, which is to assist every single saint here, including myself, to persevere, because perseverance is necessary, listen to this, for final salvation. Perseverance is necessary for final salvation. Therefore, every sermon is a salvation sermon. Now, what do I mean by that? It means this. Not just because its aim is to convert sinners. The gospel should be in every sermon so that sinners would be converted. But the gospel should also be in every sermon because its aim for the saints, for those who are believers when they hear the gospel, is that it would preserve their holy affections for Jesus. So every week, there's a... A real weight upon my shoulders that I feel as I preach. And and this isn't just daily. You You need this every day as you go through life. But there's a real weight on my shoulders that I feel that I need to preach in such a way so that the holy affections of your life are being stirred and are being preserved for Jesus. Uh, It's essential that I preach that way and that I would... Um, help you and able to confirm your calling. Now, I'm, I don't have some kind of savior complex here. Don't, don't mis- mistake me that you, in order that you stay a Christian, is dependent upon you being here 40 minutes and hearing me. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying at all. You can hear any preacher do that, and you, by your, your own um, being saved, need to engage into your walk with Christ, and that final salvation is going to happen because you're doing that. So I'm not saying that I am at all... Um, like the savior of you by my preaching. <laughs> Praise God. But, um, but here's the thing I am saying. that um, Let me ask this question. This is probably the best way to frame it. Why am I right now, before I'm getting started to preach, telling you um, about the weight of preaching on me? Why am I doing that? That's pretty, that would be a good question, Fudd. Are you just taking up time here to make sure you have 40 minutes? Um, no, I'm not. I've got plenty of content. Um, the reason why is this. Because... As a pastor stands up, as a preacher stands up every week, I'm begging God every Sunday that I would smell the smoke of hell on one side and then feel the crisp breezes of heaven on the other side. And that as I experience that, knowing that if it's true, that your perseverance in the faith is something I'm feeling the weight of every single week, that as I hear these things, that this would drive me. Just like Paul in Philippians 3.18 where he says, I want, I'm, I'm pushing towards them with tears that they would trust Christ. That as I have the reality and I'm begging God that I would feel the reality that there's hell on one side that each sinner might be given towards and there's heaven on the other side that we need to all have. I would feel that reality and I would beg you with tears if necessary to trust Christ. To put your faith in Christ every week so that you would persevere in the faith and that you would have final salvation. I feel, that week, I feel that weight every week, and I beg God for it. And if I don't have it, then God help me that I would, not, I would stop preaching. Because it's absolutely necessary. 
I pray that God would give me an acute awareness that eternity is really at stake every single week as I preach and that he would prompt me to do the most important thing I can do as preaching, which is hold out to you the glory of God. With my words, try to meagerly, if I can, put on display the glory of God so that you would and I would strive to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and Him only, that we would strive for His glory to be sought after in our own lives and our affections to be stirred for Him, that we would enjoy Him, that we would dwell in Him, and not just join and dwell, but then that we would go and spread His glory. And that's what I'm after every single week. Because this is the truth. People are starving for the grandeur of God. They're starving for it. Every single person, whether they know it or not, or whether they admit it or not, is starving to see the grandeur of God. And they're deeply desiring to know that He's real, to see how big He is, to know how amazing He is, and to experience just the extensive nature of Him and the expansive God that we worship. That is the deep desire in every single one of our souls. And what I want to, every single week, is for that to happen. And so, today, that's my first goal. And I want to do that today, giving you a taste of letting us see this glory in Revelation 5. And then we'll go to my second, secondary application goal. But first, the most important. Let's go to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, John is writing, and he says this, Then I, John saw the right hand of him, that's Jesus, who was seated on the throne. And he had a scroll written within, and on the back, seven, sealed with seven seals. So Jesus is sitting on the throne, he's holding a scroll, and there's seven seals on it. And you can just picture, there he is sitting on the throne. And I, John, saw, not this John, but John the Apostle, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So John is looking around and he's asking this angel, who's worthy to take that scroll and open it? And then it says in verse 3, and no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So we can see the predicament. We're looking all around, everywhere in heaven, no one. We're looking on earth, no one under the earth, no one. We can't find anyone who's worthy to open the scroll. What happens when that can't happen? Look at verse 4. John says, And I began to weep loudly. I began to weep loudly. This should be our response. I'm going to get to why, because we need to understand. But look, I began to weep loudly because no one, no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or look into it. No one was found worthy. What are we talking about? No one being worthy. Well, let me read it to you from a different place about the problem of no one being worthy to open up the scrolls. I'm going to talk about what open up the scrolls means, but we need to know what no one worthy means. This is another place where it talks about that in Romans chapter 3. It says, none is righteous. This is talking about every single person that's ever lived. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So we can see why no one is worthy. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the reason why no one is worthy. Because every single one of us have willingly gone out and sinned against God. So no one is worthy to open the scroll because every single one of us are sinners. So the question I'm asking is, all right, what's the deal with opening the scroll? Why do I care if the scrolls get opened? What's the significance of an open scroll? Here's the significance of an open scroll. And then when we know that, we're going to know why John is weeping so loudly. And then we'll know why we should be weeping so loudly. This is what it says. Um, the reason why the scroll needs to be opened is this, because there is no one worthy. And if there is no one worthy, then I'm still in my sin. And if Jesus Christ specifically is the one who is not worthy, then he has not um, gone to the cross for us. He has not died. He has not been raised from the dead. And my faith is futile. This moment right now where I'm preaching is completely in vain. Every word that I've ever said for every Sunday and will say for every Sunday is completely in vain if no one is worthy to open the scroll. And all men who have ever died that have gone before us that have um, put their faith in Jesus, they're still in their sins and they all have perished and all will perish. And we as Christians are above all men most to be pitied. That's how 1 Corinthians 15 says it. If no one is worthy. Because we are still in our sins. So here's the question. If we just stop right there at verse 4. And we survey the problem. We all need someone to be worthy to open up the scrolls. So that we all can be transformed. Or we all can be delivered. We all can be forgiven for our sin. There's a huge dilemma here. We just need to stop. And let the weight of that drop on us. The absolute Smoke of hell now is starting to arise up beside us because we realize no one is worthy. And John is looking everywhere, heaven, earth, under earth, and I can't find anyone. There isn't one person. No one does righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And then, don't fear because there is tremendous news in verse 5. We have the answer in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. We're going to be told in other places in Revelation 7.17 and 21.4 that there's no crying in heaven, there's no death in heaven, that he's going to wipe away every tear because the former things have passed away. So there is no sadness in heaven. And here, this is kind of being shown to us. Weep no more. Why weep no more? Behold, look. You've looked everywhere, heaven, earth, and under the earth, but you need to look right there at the throne. Behold, there is the one who is worthy. Now we can see. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered on the cross. And so that he is worthy to open the scrolls and its seven seals. There it is. There is one who is worthy. Now we're seeing because the lion has conquered. Jesus Christ himself has conquered Satan's sin and death. He, for us, on our behalf... 
Because He's done that, therefore, He is worthy. He is greatly exalted. He is holy. He is grand. He is glorious. And He's our King. And now we see the glory of God manifestly being spilled over into heaven. And because His glory is so magnificent and so expansive, the heavens can't hold it. And it's folding over and crashing over here on earth. And now the glory of God is filling everywhere because there is someone worthy. Jesus Christ is the one who's worthy, who has opened the scroll for us, who has provided a way because he has conquered for us. And now the glory of God, glory of God hopefully is being put on display for us. Hopefully, we're all seeing that everything revolves around the glory of God. We must see and enjoy and dwell in and be affectionate about the glory of God grasps specifically through faith in Jesus Christ. So now, we have seen this. The glory of God is obviously being shown to us. And what is the response? Look at verse 9 and 10. We've seen the problem and the answer is Jesus. And here's the response. Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom and priests a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We can see that there is declarations. That says right there in verse 9, they sang a new song. There's declarations of worship. The right response as we see the glory of God is that we would respond in worship. And this magnificent message right here of the glory of God, and it's all over the Bible, when we see it, I mean, really see it, it changes everything. It changes everything in your life. It changes everything in my life. It, it has to change everything in your life. You can't keep going on the same way if you've seen the glory of God displayed specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, grasped through faith in Him. It changes every single thing. So if you're an unbeliever right now, I say, put your faith in Christ right now for the forgiveness of your sins. You can have you can have eternal life with Him and be forgiven right now. So, I'm not saying wait till the end of the sermon where we play the music. Right now, put your faith in Jesus and be forgiven. And for those of you that are Christians, He is your Savior and He's your King. Now, God has given us specific instructions on how He wants us to make this message... His glory through faith in Jesus made known. He's given the church specific instructions on how He wants us to make it known, how He wants the gospel to go forth. And not has He only told us how He wants it to do it. You can read Romans 10 through for that. You can read all over really the New Testament. He's also given us specific instructions on how He wants the church, the body of Christ, to work together to work together, how the church is supposed to function together as a body as it takes the gospel forward. He's given us instructions on how to do it and He's given us instruction as the church how He wants us to function together to do it. And so, we're going to look at that today. Now, I want to start with a, uh, I want to start with a presupposition and this isn't controversial. This is just, no one's going to, I don't think, disagree with this, Okay? Um, but I just want to put it out there just so we can all remember this. It brings more glory to God 
It always brings more glory to God when we, as his church, carry out his mission the way he intends it to be carried out. Agreed? That's, that's not controversial at all. Um, it brings more glory to God when we participate in the body the way that he has designed for us to participate in the body. If we c- try to carry out his message or participate in the body in ways that, that aren't his design, it brings less glory to God. If we do it the way he has designed, it brings more glory to God. And every Christian here should say, I want to bring more glory to God. There is a Christian alive that should say, my goal is to bring less glory to God. No. We all want to bring more glory to God. And since that's the case, we all should want to operate, participate, be involved, work together in the body, function in the church the way that God has intended the church to function. Um, This means that you and I do not get to decide whether we participate in the body. Rather, God gets to decide that. We don't get to decide whether we want to participate. Because he's told us to in his word, which we have to follow because he's God and we're not. And he has bought us and he has purchased us for his glory. Amen and hallelujah to that. So there's nothing controversial so far, I don't think. Um, Now, one of the places in his word, that he has told us how we are to function in his body is in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Notice I didn't say 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, but 12 through 14. I'm going to explain that later on. Um, And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, 14. Now, if you've been any time here, right now you're probably freaking out. You're like, oh my heavens. FUD goes verse by verse. And he just said three chapters. I'm not going to get home until 8 p.m. Uh, that's not what I'm doing, okay? Paul, Paul, as he wrote 1 Corinthians 14, he's writing these three ch- chapters trying to give us an overall perspective on how the body is to function together. And so that's how I'm going to preach it today. I'm just going to survey those three chapters, and I've got four observations that I want to let you see. I'm not pulling these things out of context. They're not proof text. They are straight down. If you, if you read straight through 12 through 14, you will see that... How I pull it out and show it to you is exactly in the context of the way I think God has shown us that we should participate in the body of Christ. So I have four observations about how we are to um, be a part of the body. Now, let me take one little caveat as I explain when I say the body. This is what I mean when I say the body. When I say the body, I mean specifically the local church here at Remedy Church. Okay? Um, I don't mean the church, you know... Universal. I believe in the church universal, the bride of Christ, but I also believe in the local church. God has given us the gift of the local church. So as I say, the body, the body, I want you to think he means this particular local church. Now, if you are here, I did it again, because you're here, um, if you're here is crazy because you are here. Um, Because you're here, and I'm assuming that if you come here every week, that you think, that you might be thinking, okay, Remedy Church is the church that I'm at. 
So if Remedy Church is your church, I'm talking to you specifically as we're going through these observations that I'm making on being in the body. I'm talking to you who come to Remedy. If you are if you're a visitor and you're just happen to be visiting, then when I say an observation of being a part of the body, whatever church that you are a part of, your direct application is of ABC that church. That, that is the church, the, the direction. So um, if this is your church, when I say the body, I mean you specifically here at Remedy. If you have another church, I mean you specifically there at that particular church. All right, so here's the deal. Um, and if you have to write these down, I'm not going to stop you, but I, at least let me say them once through because and, and I, I want you to really hear all these things. Now, here's my goal. Don't miss my goal. My goal is to display the glory of God. And as I display the glory of God, help all of us see that as we participate in the life of the body, that is glorifying to God. That is glorifying to God. So I want you to see... What we look, observations on being a part of the body is glorifying to God. And we all want to glorify God. All right, here's the deal. The first thing is this. As a Christian, as a Christian, you are to seek the good of the body first before you seek the good of yourself. I'm not saying you don't seek the good of yourself. I'm not saying you don't seek your own edification or your own personal growth in Jesus Christ. Of course you do. But... As a Christian, you are to seek the good of the body first before you seek the good of yourself. And you're to strive as a body of, the, of Christ, as the body member of this body of this church. You are to strive to build this church up. You're to strive for that. Let me show you where I see that. First place, 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse number 7. Verse number 7. To each was given the manifestations of the Spirit. To each was given giftings by the Spirit. And look what he says. For the common good, for the common good, every gifting you have is to be used for the good of the body, not just for your own growth. It is for your growth, of course it is, but it's, it's primarily given to you right there for the common good. Paul doesn't rule out personal benefit as he's writing this, but it must be for the entire good of the church community. This means that you should ask yourself this question sincerely and often. You should ask this question right here. Where and how can I serve this body for its good and Christ's glory? Where and how can I serve this body? Because this is the body you're in. If this isn't your body, then you need to be thinking about whatever body you're part of, whatever church you're part of. But if this is your home church, every person that's a Christian has to ask this question. Again, we don't get the question of whether we get to participate. Every Christian should ask, where and how can I serve this body for its good and Christ's glory? There should be an inward desire of every single one of us to fulfill that question all of the time. All of the time. Let me show you one other place in, in 1 Corinthians 14 where we're carrying along that same idea about striving to build up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, he's saying since you're eager to have gifts, look what he says, Strive to excel in building up the church. Paul doesn't specify here which gifts are being used. Um, he does spe specify that when you use them, your goal is to build up the church as you use them. So just as a kind of a connecting verse for us, Paul's desire is that the church would be built up with the church. Let me, let me show you another place where it just says that really plainly. In Galatians 6.10 it says this, So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. It's not to the neglect of unbelievers, but especially to the house 
the people who are in the household of faith. So, the first part of being a body is that you as a Christian must seek the good of the body first before yourself and you should strive to build it up every day. You should ask yourself every single day, how can I fill and serve up and build this body for its good and Christ's glory? You should ask yourself that question every day. Now, you might be saying, well, yeah, Fudd, um, that's easy for you because <laughs> you get paid to ask that question every day. That's how you make your money. You get to do it all, all week. I've got my job and I've got 10 hours a week that I can maybe serve into the church. And here's the deal. I, I completely understand with what you're saying. I mean, I don't disagree with that at all. I don't see Paul making that, that, that caveat or that exception for those who are in full-time ministry versus those who aren't. It seems as though Paul is saying that if whatever church you're in, how much ever time you have, you should be asking yourself frequently and often, how can I build up and serve this body for the glory of Christ? And some people get to do it maybe with more, but every single one of us should ask that question. Now here's the second one I want you to hear. Um, and this one's, this one's something that maybe you haven't thought about. The second observation I'm seeing about being a member of the body is this. When someone suffers in the body, you should suffer too. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And I mean, this is just word for word if you look at it with me. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And then the second half is if one member is honored, all member together. I didn't use the second half, although that's obvious. If one member is honored, all would rejoice together. Um, but the first half, if one member suffers, all suffer together. So if you're going to be a part of this body, when someone suffers, you should suffer too. You should feel that with them. Now, this is difficult, I think, to wrap our minds around or to completely understand because it doesn't feel that way. As a matter of fact, uh, I would say that if someone suffers in the church, the majority of the time you don't even know. If someone's really struggling with something, you probably don't even know. Um, why is that? I think one of the reasons, at least, that we don't feel um, the sufferings of the people of the body with them as acutely as or as um, right there as the first century Christians did is because the first century Christians, um, they had all things in common. Acts 2 says they had all things in common and they were met every day in, in community and Whenever someone really suffered, they all were aware of it and they all really felt it because they all absolutely needed each other to live. So I'm not calling for like some kind of commune where we all get together and we share lawnmowers and stuff. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. And cars, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if that was what happened in Acts chapter 2, if that's the way the first century Christians felt, that whenever someone in their community suffered, they all suffered because they were so much in community with them, every single one of us must, in this 21st century, strive for that to be our mindset as much as possible for our brothers and sisters here. We must strive. When someone is suffering, we must realize that we are to come alongside them and be with them. And also, that if someone is suffering, that all suffer together. Everyone is suffering together. And you don't necessarily see that if someone's suffering. And you don't even realize that you're suffering really with them. I'm going to talk about in a second why you would be suffering with them. But 
Let me give an illustration. And I said this in first service that I struggled to even, I debated back and forth whether to use this particular illustration, but it's just so, so um, obvious and so easy to, to use. Uh, over the course of the fall, we had such a lack of kids workers that our children's director at the time, uh, children's director, um, had to be downstairs both services every time and never was able to participate in the life of the local body worshiping together, even with two services, had to be downstairs. And it, it causes people who aren't together corporately to be in the body and service but are downstairs every single week for two services in a row. It causes them to suffer. Now, here's the thing. You probably didn't even feel that. But the truth is that when someone suffers, we all suffer together. And the way that you may not have felt it, but the way we all really did suffer together is the children didn't have enough workers. So the children weren't being as cared for and as loved as well as we could. They're being cared for and loved, but not as well as we could. And that, at least for us who have kids, and maybe even for those who don't, feel that. That's how. It's so kind of indirect when, we, when someone suffers that sometimes it doesn't happen to us directly. We're like, I don't even feel that. Are you kidding me? We're suffering? Yes, we are. When someone suffers, all suffer. That's just one illustration, and we could just roll out lots of illustrations. But my point is this. An observation of your being in the body is that if someone's suffering, you are suffering too. You are suffering, and you want to acknowledge that. Um... Here's the third thing I want us to see, and it's right there in the next verse. As a member of the body, if you don't do your part, and I'm going to talk about what I mean by doing your part. As a member of this particular body, if you don't do your part the way that God has designed you to play a part in this body, then all of us, as a body, are kept from growing. Look at this in in 27. It says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So... We're individually, not individuals, but we're individually members of the body of Christ. It's, it's very obvious that you are a part of something, that you are always a, party, a part of something. And so as individuals of the mem- of, 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 as individual members of the body of Christ, every single one of us has responsibilities towards the body. There's no, there's no question whether we do. We all have responsibilities. Let me show you in Ephesians where Paul is kind of still talking about this idea about being members of the body and let you see this truth where if we don't play our part, then all of us as a body don't grow. Look at this in Ephesians 4, 16. This is what it says. Um, Ephesians 4, he's kind of walking there from whom the whole body is joined together. Where He's talking about what it means to be a body from whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint by which is it equipped. And then it says this, when each part... <clears throat> is working properly. When every single person who's in this body is doing their part, they're working properly, they're, doing, they're asking themselves, how can I make this body grow? How can I pursue and excel in making this body grow? When they're doing that, look what it says. That makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the corresponding thought is, if you're not doing that, then the body is not growing. You not exercising your particular gifts in this particular body causes the body not to grow. You're like, what are you talking about? That's not the case. I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm, re- I'm, I'm serving. I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I'm personally growing like crazy. And I, that's not what I said. 
I didn't say you individually aren't growing. I said the body's not growing. You might be individually growing, but that's, why, that's not why you have gifts. You have gifts so that the common good, so that we all will grow, which means you don't just pursue self-growth, which you should. You pursue how can I exercise my gifts into this body and make the body grow. God wants me to be a part of this body so that the body grows, not just me individually. That's what it means to be a member of the body. And again, we don't have a, we don't have a choice. As Christians, we have to be a member of a body. Now, I told you chapters back in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, not 12 and 14. Why would I do that? Why would I say that? Because 12 and 14 really are the concentrated verses on what it means to be a member of the body. And then you have this 1 Corinthians 13, which has kind of been hijacked and thrown into all the weddings with the love chapter. Um, And there's a reason why 13 is between 12 and 14. There's a reason why. So here's the fourth thing. As a, a member of the body, the reason why you do these things, the reason why you pursue the growth of the body and the building up of the church, the reason why when someone suffers, you suffer too, the reason why you must do your part so the entire body grows is because you love the people that are in your church. You love them. That's the reason why. You have an overflowing of affection for the people in your church. That is what God wants. You're supposed to have an overflowing love for the people in your body. Let me just read a couple verses to you. Um, Let me summarize 13, because I don't know if I have time, of of what I mean here. 13 is not out of context. It's specifically there in 12 through 14 for a reason. And this this is what basically the gist of 13 being put in there in this idea of gifting and body. This is what it means. If you have gifting, specific gifting for this particular church, God has, there's, God is completely sovereign and infinitely wise, and He has gifted you in such a way that when you plug into Remedy, it complements all of us. And so that if you would do your part, and I would do my part, and everybody would do their part, then the entire body will grow. You are gifted uniquely to complement and fit in exactly into this church if this is your church. That's how unbelievably wise God is. And if, if you have that gifting and you don't use it for the church out of love for the church, then, this is just the words of First Corinthians, not me. You're worthless, you're nothing, and you gain nothing. Look at, look at one through three. If I speak in the tongues of men, if I have these kind of particular gifts, but I don't have love, I'm a noising gong and a clanging cymbal. That's worthless. That's worthless. If you have these gifts and you don't have love, it's worthless. The second thing in two, if I have prophetic powers, if I have these gifts and I have all these things and I, don't have, and I have faith but I, and I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm worthless and I'm nothing. And, the, and right there in three, if I have these gifts, if I can give away all that I have and I deliver my body, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So if you have these gifts and you're in an exercise and it, worthless, nothing, you gain nothing. And I know you don't want that and I desperately don't want that. And you can see on in in the text where it says, love doesn't insist on its own way. You can see where it says love is kind. Love makes you kind to the people in your church. 
makes you kind to people in your body. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. This is the context of you and your body of your church. Love bears all things with your body. Love hopes all things, believes all things. It endures all things with your body. And it says, now these three, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these in 13, 13 is love. So the reason why you engage into this body is out of love. It's not because I've just made you feel guilty. If I've made you feel guilty, then I haven't done my job. I haven't done my job. If we've seen the glory of God being displayed and the gospel has been portrayed and we have been so moved by Jesus dying for us and our affections have been stirred and we want to pursue him with everything we have and because of that, he's given us people that we're in church with. We are, as we love him, also supposed to love our fellow man. And I find within myself swelling up, though I can't even understand, because in my sinful past, I would have never been affectionate to you. But because God has come into my heart, I am affectionate to every single person here. And that's why, because we have love for people. That's why when someone suffers, we suffer. Because we love them. You can see that easily in your family. But this is your family. If this is your church. Let me just give you some reality and statistics. This is from a church called Community by Brad House. All of our community group leaders are reading it. He says... 18% of young evangelicals that are age 18 to 23 participate actively in the local church. 18. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, which we've already surveyed, that we need every member of the body to participate in the life of the church. And when a member suffers, the whole body suffers. If that's the case, if we need the whole body to participate, he says, what happens when 82% of the body is completely missing? 18% of 18 to 20 year olds are participating We're missing 82. That's a lot of people. So what that means is when you don't participate, when you don't participate in the body, it overworks and causes other people in the church to suffer as they burn out and as they pull your share of the service in the church. It's no accident at all that chapters... 12 and 14 on how the church should function that 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter is in the middle and it's the reason why God wants us to serve others it's the reason why we want to keep people from being burnt out in their service to the church it's the reason why we don't serve out of guilt but we serve out of love for the people in our church you actively Engaging in the church shows them that you love them. That's a way. It really shows them that you love the people in your church. So I want to conclude with a little bit of perspective for us. And when I say conclude, it's like a real conclusion. It's not a preacher conclusion where I'm going to keep going. I'm I'm really going to conclude after I do this. Um, In Revelation chapter 22... I want to give us a perspective on the way our attitude and our outlook should be um, as a church. There is an urgency that as a church we're supposed to be maintaining. Look what it says in Revelation 22. This is the very last thing that God is telling us in his word. And I would say that's pretty significant. The whole Bible is significant. But um, look at this. Revelation 22, look at verse 7. Behold... 
I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That was verse 7. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing recompense with me to repay every one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. Look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Now, I'm sometimes dense and I'm hard-headed, but here's the deal. When someone goes out of their way in the very last chapter of his written word that he's delivered to me to say something three times, I think I need to listen, right? What is it that he's wanting us to remember? What is it that he's wanting us to know? He's coming soon. Yes. That was awesome. That was, that was pretty good. We don't do that very often. So that was, I'm pretty proud of y'all. Um, <laughs> he's coming soon. He's coming soon. And this, this repetition of the fact that He's coming soon is to, for us, build an urgency in us. I'm, I'm driving towards the conclusion that I'm wanting for all of us to say there's an urgency that we're supposed to be about the glory of God. That we as a church have taken hold of this glory of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that the job of the church is to display the glory of God. And its mission is to call for people to be um, putting their faith in Christ. That we are, as a church, to hold out the glory of God by making disciples. Making disciples means unbelievers coming to Christ and believers growing in their walk with Christ. And so that's how we want to um, see people get saved and mature people that are already Christians. And the way we want to mature people that are already Christians, the way we want to make a disciple here, I know God makes the disciple, not us, but you know what I mean. Make a disciple is this, through word, through them studying and knowing the word through and knowing Jesus, through accountability, through living a life on mission, through serving in this particular body, and through love. Through love. So, we're seeing here, there's an urgency. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And if that's the case, since that's the case, will you join us if you're not? already will you join us will you join us to see people be discipled the way that God has designed it to happen his hope and prayer for the world is the church and he's designed the church the way he wants it to function and the way he wants it to function is that you would actively participate in the body by seeing people get better become better Christians, and pursue the lost. And what I just want to know is, if this is your church, will you actively engage with us? Because we're under a crunch for time. He's coming soon. One place says that, and as he's given a parable in the New Testament, he says, don't even pack your bags. Just, I mean, don't like settle in and, and everything. Keep a little bag ready because I'm going to come just like a thief in the night and it's going to be time to go. Be ready. There's an urgency that we all should be maintaining as Christians there's no time for us to kind of lay back and just wait to participate. Instead, if you're a Christian, we don't have the choice whether we're to participate. So I want to know, will you join us? And the reason why I say that is because I believe in the mission of Remedy. I wouldn't be the pastor if I didn't believe in the mission of Remedy. It would be insane for me to work for the church if I didn't believe in it. And the reason why I say I believe in the mission because it's not mine, it's God's. He wants the glory of God. I want the glory of God to be displayed 
And then as we're doing that, we want to see people grow in their relationship with Christ and reach the lost. That's our mission. I believe that. I believe in that mission because it's God's mission, not mine. So will you join us? Will you actively participate with us in that? So as we go into our time of response, um, this is a time for us to respond in a couple ways. Number one, respond through prayer. Maybe you need to sit and think and just ask for some clarity on these things that we've talked about. If this is where you call your church and you're not seeking the good of the body before yourself, if someone suffers, you have no idea. If you're not doing your part, you're keeping the body from growing and you don't love others. Maybe you just need to sit and pray and, and think through that and pray prayers of repentance, asking God to change your heart, asking God to give you a fresh response and thought towards that. If the glory of God is not something that you're manifestly living for, then maybe you just need to pray that you would. Here's the deal. If you're saying, yes, I'm going to do it because FUD made me feel guilty and I'm going to do it. I haven't done my job. I don't want to motivate you with guilt. I want to motivate you with the gospel because Jesus has died and he's glorious and I've seen that glory and I want to live for that glory. Therefore, I want to do all the things that bring him glory. And one of those is serving the body and I'm motivated by the gospel to do it. Then I've done my job, if that's why. But if you just feel guilty, I haven't done anything. And I don't want you to because that won't last. But if you're motivated by the gospel, there's God giving you infinite power and that will last. So here's the last thing. As you think, as you pray, as you repent, always, please, stand and worship. Because God has declared you if you're in Christ completely holy. God has said that there is therefore no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are 100% righteous before God. And that is tremendous reason to stand and worship. So as you think, pray, repent, please stand and worship because God is worthy. And we're all joining in with the angels and the saints in heaven, exclaiming out to him that he's worthy. He is our king and our savior. Will you join in with us at making that known to the world? Let's pray. God, it's true. My heart really is starving to see your grandeur. And every one of our hearts is. And so, I pray that that would happen this morning. That we would get a glimpse of your glory. Resolve to live for your glory. And as a direct application for today, want to bring you glory by being active in a church body. And when I mean active, I mean active. That we would want that. Be with my friends now as they think and pray. And Lord, if they're already active, we praise God for that. We praise you for that. We thank them and we praise you. And so I pray, Lord, that you have laid it on all of our hearts to ask the question, how can I seek 
the good of this church body if this is where I'm going to be. For its good and for Jesus Christ's glory. Be with us now as we worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.